Hi, my name is Jason Serber. My family and I have been attending Christ Church for 11 years. In late April 2013, my wife had to call 911. Paramedics came and got me. They brought me to Lake Forest Hospital. They say that my face started drooping on the left side. So they did another scan of my brain after being in there for about a day. At that point, they realized I'd had a stroke. Immediately, or very soon, I realized I couldn't move anything on my left side. The doctors warned me that I may never be able to move my left arm again. I've been trying for a month. It's been over a month since my stroke to move my left arm. I went with my occupational therapist, and for like the umpteenth time, we went in and they went through a test to have me, all right, well, you need to move your arm, you need to pick up these objects and move them on a table. I kind of rolled my eyes and said, oh, we're going to do this again? Because every time I'd look at my arm, the arm wouldn't move at all. Well, this time I said, no, I'm going to do it differently. I'm not going to try to move it. I'm going to just simply pray about my head. Prayed. Looked up. Thumb is moving. The fingers the whole thing my therapist were crying went to see my doctor he even got emotional before the stroke I was also battling cancer and as part of that I had to go through lots of chemotherapy God has surrounded me with love everywhere I turn one example would be soon after I was diagnosed and about to begin chemo I didn't want to have my kids have the experience of watching my hair fall out. So I came to my barber to have my head shaved. And I thought it would be fun to make an experience for my kids to come and watch that happen. So I walk into the door of the barber shop. I've got my kids with me, my wife Kirsten. I walk in and I see 20 guys. My friends, my father-in-law, my brothers, head shaven. They'd already been there. They were waiting for me. These guys were my family. They were the dads of my kids' friends, coaches of their sports teams. All bald. I didn't ask for it. They were there. That was a blessing for me, but more so for my kids. Oh, they saw that we were not alone. They looked around. It wasn't just their dad going through this. It was all of us. I was praying that my kids wouldn't feel alone. And then that happened. And they got it. Jason and I share more in common than uh, we would like. In addition to being great-looking, smart, and athletic, (laughs) and graduating from the same college, we both had strokes. And Jason was uh, one of the very first people outside of family to visit me downtown uh, in the ICU ward. 
And I had this no visitors, lockdown, absolutely nobody is supposed to get in here. And Jason walked past all of that and he said, uh, I'm here, Mike visited me here, I'm here to visit him, and it doesn't apply to me. And it was great to see him there. And then Jason actually was came back a, about a week and a half later when I'd finally been cleared to eat food, maybe it was a couple weeks later, and he brought a steak. So uh, that was great. So we're, we're sorry to share everything in common, but Jason, as you can see, is just a great example of the topic we're going to turn to today, which is surrender. So let me start, Jason, by asking, how would you describe surrender? Uh, for me, surrender is trusting God completely, fully. And, and in your experience, is that a, a one-time event or is it a, is it a bunch of events? For me, it was a process. It happened over time, and uh, it was accelerated by the stroke, but it was starting for me even prior to that. I think that's an important point to sit on for a second. In, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, which is a spiritual act of worship. And one of my seminary professors would always say, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. And uh, so it's an ongoing process of surrendering ourselves. Jason, what else would you share with folks here? Well, in terms of surrender, I would say when I was at the earlier stages of my crisis, dealing and working through shock and sadness and struggling, I required anti-anxiety medicine to sleep at night. Once I really started going through the surrender, I didn't need the medication anymore, and I slept better than ever. Thank you. Let's give Jason a hand. This uh, series is uh, based on the idea that we, at some point in time, are all going to get knocked down, and that Americans are particularly bad at coping with that kind of uh, struggle and major loss. And so what we've been looking at in the sermon series is the stages that we walk through following major loss, shock, sorrow, struggle, which translates as sort of numbness, uh, sadness, and then, uh, and then anger. And we now come to this topic of surrender, which is the, uh, the first optional one. Okay? So if something, when something bad happens, you will, if it's big enough, you will go through shock, you will go through sorrow, you will enter into struggle. Whether you ever leave struggle or not is up to you. Some people will spend the rest of their life frustrated, angry, angry at God, angry at life, feeling cheated, trying to, trying to rework something, playing it over in their mind every, just every day, and they are stuck there. Maybe you are stuck there. But there is a way forward, and this way forward actually requires surrendering. We win by losing. This is not an act of weakness. This is not waving a white flag. It's not surrender in that sense. It's actually an act of, uh, of great strength. And today we're going to look uh, for, some, for some tips on how to surrender from 
uh, King David. And we're going to look at this, the, the events that surround the death of one of his children, which I think we could all agree has to be among the most horrific experiences that anyone uh, could have. And it's found in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. I'm going to read from that in a second. Again, the, the idea here is that these, these setbacks, these trials, struggles, hardships, whatever you want to call it, major loss, it does not have to destroy us. It does not have to define us. It can, in fact, develop us. Uh, we, can, we can win by losing. Now, let me just say, before we jump into this, this is sort of a 301 or a 401 topic. And so some of what I share may not make any sense to you today. So I want to encourage you to take notes, file them away, and uh, remember where you file them. Because you may come to a point where you realize, I'm stuck. I'm in this little calibrated loop where I just can't quite move through it. And that's when uh, you'll need to pull these notes out and work through them. So um, the passage is 2 Samuel chapter 12. King David has just made some very stupid mistakes. Uh, He's the king. He should have been leading his troops in battle. Instead, he is back at the palace. And he goes out one night onto uh, his balcony, and he looks down, and he sees a woman, uh, because, you know, Jerusalem is very hilly, and so the, the castle, the king's The king's home is up on the hill. He looks down and he's able to see a woman who's out on her balcony bathing at night. And uh, uh, this is the wife of one of his soldiers, a man by the name of Uriah. But David uh, abuses his powers as king and he sends someone down to get Bathsheba and to bring her back to him. And uh, he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And when she lets him know... David does a whole handful of things trying to manipulate the situation so that he can get out of this responsibility. Ultimately, he has Uriah killed in battle, and uh, then he marries Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan has just come to him, the passage we're going to read. Prophet Nathan has just come to him and uh, highlighted what David has done. And, and when David realizes sort of the, the, the magnitude of his wrong, he repents. And we have the prayer that he prays in Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to read out of 2 Samuel, sort of picks up and is telling more of the story here. So 2 Samuel, beginning with verse, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. 
Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through the Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. So what happens is that uh, after Nathan leaves, the child becomes sick, and David, uh, as any father would do, he is just beside himself. He can't eat. He is praying. He is begging God to spare the life of his son. Um, I have just a hint of what this might feel like in the in the days uh, so twenty three years ago in the days immediately following the birth of our second son Ben both Ben and Sherry ended up uh, in a bad place and we're in the hospital and uh, they're both in sort of a uh, she's in sort of a critical care moment, and, and Ben has got complications. And there was just a few hours when I thought it was possible that I was going to lose both of them. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting in a room that's completely black because um, Sherry had, was very sensitive to light. And I just remember just begging God, no, you know, no, do not, this is not a path that I want to go down, right? I want, I want both of them to be okay. And so I, I, I just had a little taste, just for a couple hours. Some of you have the full experience. You have lost a child or some um, horrific event. And so you can understand a little bit about what is going uh, on here. Um, I read Rick Warren's reflections after the death of his son, Matthew, who was 27 and, and ended his own life. And uh, Rick said, I prayed for Matthew every day of his life. And most days I was just begging God to heal him of his mental illness. And he didn't. So David's son dies. Rick's son dies. What do you do? How do we process this? Well, I want to give you four sort of steps to surrender. Number one, accept what cannot be changed. Accept what cannot be changed. Part of shock is denial. When I was in uh, Northwestern Hospital downtown in the ICU ward, I was in denial that I had had a stroke for uh, the better part of a week. Right? I just, I heard it, I knew everybody thought I'd had a stroke, and I just kept thinking, I haven't had a stroke, I just have the flu, I'm going to get up and walk out of here. It took a while. Sherry said she, she felt so uh, negative, because she was always saying to me, Mike, you can't do that, Mike, you can't do that. She goes, here, I want to encourage you, but I just got to spend all this time saying, no, you're not in the shape you think you're in, you can't do that. Uh, so... 
part of shock is denial. At some point, we have to accept the facts as they are. We have to deal with reality. In 2 Samuel uh, 12.22, David says, uh, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the baby live, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. Um, He will not return to me. David decides, I'm not going to spend any more time trying to deny what what is real. So one of the very first things that we have to do is accept reality. So let me just pause here and ask you, have you accepted reality? Are there ways in which you are stuck? Are there dreams that you are not uh, letting go of, even though they're not going to come true? Right? Is there something that is holding you back because you simply are not willing to accept the truth as it is? David did. Point number two, second step towards surrender is to shine your headlights into eternity because eternity changes everything. If if you've been reading along in these books, you know that in in book three I, I share about how important this idea of eternity was to me. I had a sort of a false optimism about my condition uh, because of some things that were said to me about my stroke that actually proved not to be true. But it left me much more optimistic about my recovery than I probably should have been. But there were moments when I had this sense that I may not get better. And I may be, this may be my future, right? I I couldn't even sit up in bed and I thought, this may be it. I may be just bedbound for the rest of my life. And as dark as that was, the, the hope, right, the thing that gave me peace in the midst of that was thinking, but that's not it, right? It may be a long time. I may suffer for 20 or 30 years, but that is a brief moment in light of forever. And I can do that in light of forever because I know what I have been promised. So let me say, if you are in Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you have made that great exchange, given him your sin, taken his righteousness, all your problems are temporary. Every trial is momentary. That's the good news. David says this, right? He says, uh, the, the baby is not coming back to me, but I will go to him. Right? He, is, he is living today in light of the fact that he's going to live forever. And eternity changes everything. We need to have that eternal mindset. Now, I'm not going to suggest that this is easy or that it comes quickly. It takes, it takes time. And these major losses that we face... Uh, they just clang like a bell for a while. And it takes time for that bell to stop ringing. Uh, as, as most of you know, my father passed away a couple months ago. And I still, when I think about Christmas, the first second that I think about Christmas, he's going to be there. Right? And then I have to remind myself, no, he's not going to be there. 
right? Because it's just that it just takes a while. Uh, yesterday, my dad went to Michigan State. So yesterday, Michigan State beating Michigan. I, mean, I came into the office at about one to get ready for last night, and I've got ESPN uh, game game scan on there. So I keep looking up at the score, and every time I see the Michigan State has scored another touchdown, I want to call my dad, right? Because I know he's just going to be so ecstatic. But then I have to remind myself: No, my dad, uh, my dad has gone to be with the Lord. And uh, I, I know I'll see him, but there's still, uh, it, it, it takes work, right, to process that and to live today in light of eternity. Everything about what's going on around us is calling us to live in the moment, and it's denying eternity. But in fact, uh, we, need, we need to have that eternal perspective. Point number three. We need to get on with life. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 reads, Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. Now this might strike you as sort of nothing, right? But I, I think there's actually a lot to be said for this. 80%, 80% of people who uh, have a stroke get depressed. I don't think that happened to me, but I definitely sort of slipped into a little bit of melancholy there. And I, I realized it in part because uh, I was just trying to sleep as much as I could. Uh, I, the more, I love the mornings. I get up early. That's sort of my, my thing. And, and I, love to, I love to go downstairs and uh, spend a little time in prayer and then study. And, you know, the, the house is quiet. The coffee is strong. It's, it's great. I love the mornings. Well, the problem about mornings at RIC was, uh, first of all, I wasn't allowed to get out of bed unless somebody was there to, to help me. Secondly, I had a roommate. Right, who's, who was lying in a bed just about 10 feet from me. So if I turn on lights, right, that's sort of rude to wake him up at 5 a.m. And thirdly, by the way, I couldn't see very well. I couldn't read. So if I held things this way and I sort of looked out of the corner of my eye, occasionally I could figure out what a word said, but I, it's not like I could get up and study. So I, I started to just sleep. And I, I, my goal was to sleep as late into the morning as I could. And then one day I thought, no, 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 I'm done with that. I mean, I wasn't shaving. I'm staying in this goofy hospital gown. And I said, I'm done. Tomorrow morning, I'm getting up early. I'm going to shave. I'm going to shower. I'm going to put on real clothes, even if it takes me a half hour to do it. And then I'm going to go down to the first floor where I saw that coffee stand. And I'm going I'm to buy a real cup of coffee. Right? And one of the things that has happened as a result of this stroke is that I can't control my emotions quite as well as I used to be able to. So I'm down there in this coffee line in a wheelchair, just sort of in line, just mostly business folks, you know, that are passing by, some medical staff. And, and I'm just, you know, just trying to figure out how to do this. And I order a cup of coffee and they, and, and they give it to me, right? And, and I almost start crying because I'm like, I can do this, right? I can, I can do this. I just have to put one foot in front of the other. I have to get up off the ground. I have to go through the motions. And it was, it, there's, there's something about that. We're, we're told here, David is on the ground, right? So I don't know whether he's on the ground because he's just been lying there, prostrate, praying 
uh, to God when he gets the news, or if after he hears the news, he just collapses onto the ground. And we're not told how long he stayed there. But what we're told is, at some point, relatively soon, he gets up, he cleans himself up, he puts on new clothes, and he goes about life. And, and that's part of surviving some sort of major loss, is to just one foot in front of the other. I, I shared this story last night, and, and uh, Eloy, one of the uh, new-to-Christ church, uh, Eloy, who is also at RIC, he's, he's uh, now a paraplegic, uh, he said to me, he goes, I remember so well doing exactly the same thing. He goes, deciding I was going to go down to that coffee stand and get a cup of coffee. And what a, what a transition it was for me to say. He goes, physically I could do it. It was just emotionally and mentally to say, I got to do this. So there's something to be said for just getting on with life. So four steps to surrender. Number one is accept what cannot be changed. Number two, shine your headlights beyond the grave and into eternity. Number three, uh, get on with life. Number four, worship. Second Samuel uh, twelve twenty says, Then David went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. Now, for the record, um, we don't actually know whether or not this is what David wanted to do. My experience uh, sort of watching people move through major grief is that this is really uh, an inflection point. A major loss is a transitional moment for people. And uh, Jeff Schlockenhofen in his video last week shared that. Jeff has pancreatic cancer and he said, you know, cancer, a, a cancer like this or a stroke, right, or a major life loss, a divorce, the loss of a child, whatever it is. He said these are these sort of force us to go one way or the other, right? To go towards God or to run away from God. My experience is that a lot of people, um, when the worst things happen to them, run to God. And, and it's not, because others will look on and they will say, how can you serve and honor and worship a God? How can you believe in a God when these things are happening to you? But that's not the question the person who's just been thrown to the ground is asking, right? They just, they, they're, they're like, where else can I go, right? Who else can I take this level of pain to, right? I've got no options. So they're not thinking through that question. Now, some are. Some absolutely are. They're rattled. And, and I'm not talking about those that are angry at God. Because remember I said, God can handle our anger. The Psalms are full of, of prayers of anger at God. Where are you? You're sleeping. Come on, already. Get with it. Do your job. Right? We've got those prayers in the book of Psalms. God can handle our, our anger. And going to God with our anger is almost a form of worship in itself. It's recognizing who he is and turning to him. So I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about some will move away. I don't know whether or not that was David's default response or not, but what we see is that he goes to the temple, the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. It's going to be built by his son. But he goes to the tabernacle, the place of worship, and he worships God. And, and he goes there in part because 
worship, right, which is an act of surrender, ultimately, right? To worship is to acknowledge, I'm not the greatest. The world shouldn't revolve around me. There is someone grander. And, and to worship as a, as a Christ follower is to acknowledge someone loves us so much they sent his son to die in my place. I, I can trust him. Now, I do not understand what's going on here. But I know that he's good and that I can trust him. And so David goes to worship. Psalm 73, 16 says, I tried to understand all this, but it was too hard for me to see until I went to the temple of God. So coming into, the, coming into worship, to have uh, that experience of, of uh, transcendence, and to recognize who God is. It is, a, it is a moment that can help us realign our perspective and move forward. So <clears throat> that is the fourth, uh, that's the fourth step to surrender. Now there's more in this passage that we could look at. Some have suggested that Psalm 6 is the psalm that David prayed. Uh, that he wrote when he was uh, grieving. It's the first of seven what we call penitential psalms. These are psalms that of, of people who are repenting from something they have done. Do so. We could look there. Um, the passage goes on to say that uh, David will comfort his wife Bathsheba, and that eventually they will have another son. Which means we can see that that uh, David decides to risk again. Right, and that, that's almost another point. Because sometimes when we've been really hurt, all we want to do is hide. And we want to limit uh, our exposure. And, if you, and to love is to risk, right? If you love someone or something, you're at risk of seeing that uh, die or do something that would leave you uh, just devastated. But David uh, doesn't stay there. He decides to move on. Um, so there's more in this passage. I, I just want to be sure, as I wrap this up, that you understand that surrender is not an act of weakness. It's not an act of, of resignation as much as it is a yielding to God. Right? It is, it is saying, I'm going to give up my dream to sign on for something bigger and better. And I do not understand that. Um, but surrender, done right, leads to peace. The kind of peace that would lead Jason to say, right, I, I, I could go off the anti-anxiety medication. My experience was uh, that at the lowest point physically, uh, there was a deep sense of peace and sweetness with God that I really uh, that I really enjoyed, and it was so clear to me that uh, all I could do was trust. I couldn't do anything else. Couldn't sit up. Couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything. So all I could do is lay there, and and as I would pray, there was a sense of, okay, God. I, I am completely yours, right? And it's completely in your hands. And it was like, and I'm good with that, 
right? And, and as I started to get better, and maybe you read this in the blog, as I started to get better, I sensed that deep peace and sweetness with God starting to slip away. And I asked people to pray. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose this. I, I came to the conclusion that uh, I couldn't hold on to it, right? Having the ability to do things sort of uh, meant that I was now taking over some control in some way that was not inappropriate, but it meant that that deep sense of sweetness was going to, uh, it was going to go away. And uh, I, it's, it's, I've got more there now than before the stroke. I mean, again, I've, I've said this before. I see God's hand in this. It's been good. But uh, there is an act of surrender, I, I thought somebody suggested that we get a declaration of dependence that we uh, have in the lobby and let everybody sign it. Uh, what an anti-American thing to do. Uh, but I thought, yes, there is a sense in which we recognize, and this is part of the whole yielding, it's part of the whole alignment around God that we say, I am dependent on God, and I'm going to surrender my independence uh, again. I've been uh, I've been reading a legal thriller at uh, this past week. I'm not going to give you the title because it's it's not great, but but it's interesting in this sense. Uh, the the protagonist, this defense attorney, is a recovering alcoholic, and um, he's at AA meetings every week, sometimes three or four times a week, and uh, and the author makes a lot out of this. And uh, what I didn't realize was that there's more to this serenity prayer than, uh, than I had heard. Uh, you know, AA uh, makes much of this serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right? I've heard that many, many times. It's not in the Bible. It's just a, it's a prayer that somebody wrote. And I thought it was, that that was sort of it. But it goes on. The next part of it, the next, not verse, but the next part of this prayer is um, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Right? Understanding again how catalytic, transformative major trials can be. Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is. Not as I would have it. Okay, so let me read that again. Taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. That's the first step that we shared in surrender, right? Accepting the facts on the ground, accepting reality, trusting in your will that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. So let me say this. Surrender is optional. You do not have to do it, right? But you have that opportunity, right, to, to, to yield to God to turn things over to him, to trust that he actually has a better plan. And that if you knew all the facts on the ground, if you knew everything as God did, you would choose the path that he has put in front of you, even though it may be horribly hard and devastating for a time. But it, it's, it is 
going to remold you and that you can push through this. You don't have to stay stuck. If you're stuck, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be devastated. You don't have to be anxious. You can move through to a place of great peace if you surrender and be on the pathway towards growth, which will be next week, sanctification, and then ultimately to service. I want to invite you to surrender yet again to God. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, I am sure that there are many here uh, this morning who are stuck, who, have, uh, who are holding on to anger or resentment, bitterness, who are holding on to dreams that are not going to happen and uh, just cannot move to a place of peace. It's, it's, it is eluding them. And so I pray, Father, that they would understand through David's steps Through worship, uh, they would understand again who you are and what you offer, and they would yield their life to you, uh, to your glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.